Uh, thank you, Jonathan. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. So good to see so many of you. Uh, we are in the middle of a series on the book of Hebrews that we're going to be uh, kind of continuing in throughout the rest of the spring all the way until about the end of school, sometime at the end of May or beginning of June. Uh, we've gotten all the way to chapter 3, so if you would open your Bibles with me, you're welcome to. You can take a few Bible if you'd like, or you can just look in the worship folder at the scripture passage that we've printed for you, or just uh, follow along on the screen behind me as we read. We're going to read the entire chapter, the entire third chapter, uh, but we're actually really going to focus in on verses 6 through verses 14. But, but just in doing that, I wanted, to, I wanted to have the opportunity just to read the whole chapter to, you know, together. So we're going to read Hebrews 3. And then we're going to kind of narrow it down as we, as we talk together this morning. But let's begin by reading the beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness... Where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all, who, all those who left Egypt by, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. This is God's word. Um, this book of Hebrews, we've said you know, a few times now, was written to Jewish Christians who were thinking about giving up on their faith. And therefore, spread throughout the book are these, are these warnings or these conditional statements like the two you find in this, in this chapter. And so I want you to look at verse 6. At the very end of that verse where the writer says, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, and then there's this statement, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And then again in verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Okay? So there's two conditional statements, and these are not going to be the last of these. It gets, it gets even worse and even scarier in chapter 6. It's not the last time we're going to see this. But here are these two conditional statements that talk about the danger of beginning but not finishing in the Christian faith. And F.F. Bruce, who wrote a commentary on the book of Hebrews, says that both these warnings teach, and here's his way of phrasing it, that continuance in the Christian life is the test of reality. 
In other words, what matters most about Christianity is that you don't quit. I mean, God can overcome your mistakes, but what matters most is that you don't quit, that you finish. And so, for example, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus describes all of the trials and the temptations that his followers are going to experience. And he says this in verse 13, many will fall away and the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So what matters is getting to the end, not quitting, not giving up. No matter what happens, no matter how many life may lay you out, you get back up and you keep going. That's how you know you're really a Christian. That's what the Scripture's teaching. The, the, the continuance in the Christian life is the test of reality. Uh, and so we, in our circles, refer to this as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Now, what that does not mean, okay? Be careful. It, this does not mean that you are saved through enduring to the end. Look at verse 14 again, Okay? Hebrews does not say that we will come to share in Christ's future tense if we hold on to the end. It says, look carefully, that we have come to share in Christ, which is heiress active tense. And that just means it refers to a past event that has ongoing continual implications. So it's not we will future tense share in Christ if we hold firm to the end. It says we have, we, we, we have come to share in Christ, heiress active tense of the verb there. And the way we prove that to be true is we hold on to the end. So the holding on to the end is the proof of our being saved by grace through faith in Christ. It is not a condition but for being saved at some point in the future. Okay, you with me? So one commentator put it this way. He says, the holding fast verifies that something real and lasting has happened to us, namely that we became partakers of Christ. What then would be the conclusion if we do not hold fast? The answer is not that you stop being a partaker of Christ, but that you have never become a partaker of Christ. So that commentator goes on to say, my security and assurance is not a decision or a prayer that I remember doing in the past. My security and my assurance is the faithfulness and the power of God to keep me hoping in him in the future. It's a great statement. My security is that he who began a good work in me will complete it to the day of Christ. Philippians 1.6. So continuance in the Christian life is the test of reality. Now, so here's what we want to do. That's what this passage is about. See, it's bracketed by those two conditional statements, if, those if clauses. And so what we want to do is we want to look at what this passage teaches us about endurance. If endurance, if continuance in the Christian life is the test of reality, then what do we learn about uh, about endurance in this passage. And there are three things I want you to see with me this morning. I want us to see first the need for endurance, secondly the method of endurance, and thirdly the means of endurance. So the need for it, the method of it, and the means of it. All three of those things right here in this text so that we can talk about this, this issue a little bit more together, okay? First, the need for endurance. And this is the reason for the two conditional statements here, Okay. He wants us to wrestle with the reality of there really is a sense of continuance in the Christian life being the test of, of, of reality in the heart. So he uses these two conditional statements to bring this out. And then also, if you look here, he, he also offers a historical reference to make his point. And the historical reference is the wilderness wanderings of Israel. The quotation there, verses 7 through 11, which you see, uh, is, is a quotation of Psalm 95 
which Psalm 95 recounts the events of Exodus chapter 17. Do <laughs> you follow that? So he's quoting Psalm 95, which references the, the, the events of Exodus chapter 17. And here are the details. Okay, the Lord has brought Israel out of Egypt. And he's taking them, you know, he, he's done these amazing, these amazing things for them. There have been all of these miraculous displays, display after display of God's saving power. You know, the, the Nile turns to blood, right? And then there are frogs and there are locusts and there's all these kinds of things. And the plague of the firstborn son where every firstborn son in Egypt dies because of uh, Pharaoh's obstinacy and refusal to let them go. And then they get out and on their way they come to the Red Sea and they're pinned up against it. And the, Pharaoh, the armies of Pharaoh are coming down to attack them. And Moses stretches out his staff and the Red Sea is parted and they walk across on dry ground. And then as Pharaoh tries to come across, you know, it closes down on top of him. And also all of these things that God has done. I mean, just these incredible unfathomable, miraculous events and displays of his love for them and his power to save them. And yet they come into the wilderness. And almost immediately, if you read in Exodus, just a couple of chapters later, they come into the wilderness. And despite all of these miraculous, amazing, unfathomable acts on God's part for them and to show them his power to save them, Almost immediately, really about six weeks into the journey, they begin to grumble about how they're being treated. <laughs> I just, I read that and I think, I mean, that's just amazing. 400 years of slavery, right? 400 years of slavery. And God comes to miraculously, miraculously rescue them and take them to a land they could call their own. 400 years of slavery and it took all of six weeks for them to become discontent. And to start to say, you know what, we're just going to go back to Egypt. I mean, that's the rebellion and the testing that Psalm 95, quoted here in Hebrews 3, verse 8, refers to. And God saw it as a clear turning away from him, and therefore he was provoked to wrath, he says. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing, okay, get this. The writer of Hebrews is looking back at this event in Israel's history. And then he's turning back to his readers, and he's saying, verse 12... Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from the living God the way Israel did in the wilderness. In other words, he says, what happened to them could happen to you, and it could happen to me if we're not careful, if we're not diligent, if we play around with sin, unless we pay careful attention and stay on guard and watch over our hearts, we are liable to the same temptation. And we all know, don't we? I mean, you have stories of people in your life that, that for many, you know, many years even seemed to be committed to Jesus and then something happened. Something happened. And things just began to unravel. I have two stories. I thought of two stories of people that I dearly love and I won't use their names because uh, just, just for confidentiality reasons. But there was one girl in my youth group. Her name, I'll call her Beth. And uh, Beth and I got to go on a couple of mission trips together. And the last mission trip we got to go on together was the summer before her junior year in, in high school. And when we got back, we went to Russia for 10 days. And when we got back to Russia, she on, the, on about two weeks after we got back, she came into my office to see me and she said, I got something crazy I want to talk to you about. This is a 16-year-old girl. I feel like God's calling me to go back. Well, what about high school? I don't know. I just can't get it out of my head that God wants me to go back there. And so here I am, a uh, youth pastor who goes with this girl to meet with her mom to say, hey, mom, 
she thinks she's supposed to go back to Russia. Mom says, no way she's going back to Russia. She's going to finish high school. And so we decided that Beth would not go back to Russia. Four weeks later, she had left the faith. And she still has left the faith to this day. I mean, just... Uh, the other the other story I would tell you is I'm going to call him Jack, and Jack was a friend of mine, very dear friend of mine. Um, in fact, the youth pastor that I work with, uh, the most talented person I've, I really, the most talented speaker, uh, the most talented uh, minister of the gospel that I've ever been around, uh, who who just, God was blowing him, I mean, just doing amazing things through him, and he had a very fruitful ministry in all the different places that he went. Uh, and then after, you know, 10 years of doing ministry alongside of one another, um, there came out that there was some hidden sin in his life. And the subsequent five years, he's, for all practical purposes, left the faith. Right? We all have stories like this, don't we? Where you look at somebody and you say, wow, there's, so much, there's just such energy. And pa- I mean, I'm talking about a girl who went on mission trips and who wanted to go leave high school and go give her life to people in Russia. And a man who was... A minister of the gospel, not just a minister of the gospel, but a powerful, I mean, powerful minister of the gospel, for all, I mean, for all we, could, we experienced it to be, and a very, very dear, you know, lover of Jesus who, because, you know, something happened, and there was this unraveling that occurred, and both of them today have no sign that they are really interested in, in Jesus. I mean, this, this is, I mean, this is serious stuff. And so Hebrews says, be careful, verse 12, take care lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart that would lead you to fall away from the living God. And the reason Hebrews uses the wilderness wanderings of Israel as an example for us is that the Christian life he's trying to teach us is like a wilderness experience. It's like a literal desert where the conditions are harsh. There, there's a scarcity of provision and we're vulnerable. And he wants us to see this is, this is, this is what the Christian life is like. And the metaphor also speaks to our experience of God that, that you see in Egypt, God seemed to be close and attentive to them. There was a new plague every week, and in the promised land, God's around too. But when you're going, you know, he's conquering your, their enemies, and he's doing all these amazing things to, to save them. But when they're going through the wilderness, it's that wilderness time. It's, it's in this wilderness experience where the miracles are few and far between, right? And where God doesn't seem to do what you expect him to do, and he doesn't do what you want him to do or what you ask him to do. And what Hebrews... When Hebrews says that the Christian life is like a wilderness, right? It's like that wilderness experience. He means that the more often than not, God will not seem to be doing the things you want him to do. He, he may seem distant or, or seem not to care. And that's just the condition out of which we have to live out our Christian life until we're home with him. But here's the main, let's get into more detail about this Exodus 17 event. Because you see, in Exodus 17, the Israelites had camped, and you can turn there if you want to, at a place called... Rephidim. And the text is clear about two things, and this is so, this is so uh, neat to me and so uh, frightening. Two things the text is very clear about. First, in verse 1 of chapter 17, it's very clear that they are, they are camped there because God has commanded them to camp there. And so literally God would move them from place to place, and they would camp, he would say, camp here, and then Moses would say, okay, set up camp and we camp here. So God has commanded them to camp at this place called Rephidim. But there's a second little... T- feature in the text. And the second thing is, is the text is very clear that there's a big problem with God's choice of a campsite. There's no water. Now, did you get that? God commanded his people to camp where there was no water. 
Why would God do that? And here's the problem. See, if you read your Bible very carefully, you'll see that this is a pattern of the way God relates to his people. My favorite example is one that we read just a few weeks ago in Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abram, who is, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, content, living his life in his father's house. Things are going along pretty well. And God begins to say, Abram, uh, go, for I am sending you to a land that I will give to you, and I'm going to bless you. And I'm, when you get there, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to defeat your enemies. I'm going to give you descendants that outnumber the stars of the heavens. It is going to be amazing for you. It will be a land flowing with milk and honey. Go, I'm going to bless you. And Abraham goes. Now, if God had come to you and said, go to this land where I will bless you, when you got to the land, what would you expect? Blessing. Abraham got there thinking, man, this, this is, I mean, and Lot came along with him because Lot's smart enough to say, that sounds pretty good. I'm going to go with that guy. And so Abraham and Lot and their families go and they get to the land. And when they get to the land, the very first thing that happens there in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, is there's a famine. That's awesome. Okay? I mean, that is, Abraham, go. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you descendants now. Number the stars of the heaven. Abraham goes, okay, God, I'm here. Boom, famine. What is that? And see, this is not, this is not a one-time thing. This is, I mean, you read the Bible over and over and over again. This is how God relates to his people. It's what he does. is how he leads us. God led them to a place to camp at a place where there was no water. He led them to a place where they would need him. He led them toward helplessness in order to teach them to live in dependence upon him. He sovereignly ordered their lives to teach them to live by faith, to trust in him, right? Not in themselves, and to trust in his love for them and his power to save them, and not their own power. That's the Christian life. And the danger Hebrews warns us against by using this historical example, if you look in verse 12 and then again in verse 19, the danger is this word unbelief. Verse 12, take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And then again in verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And so for the writer of Hebrews, this episode of Rephidim was an illustration of what it looks like to be overtaken by an evil, unbelieving heart. So what happened there in Exodus 17? God commanded them to camp. There was no water. And instead of turning to him in their need, they began to grumble and complain about the fact that there was no water. And it was their grumbling and their complaining that God called rebellion. They tested me, he said. I mean, they rebelled against me. And you might think, that's the most ridiculous thing. Grumbling, really? That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. But let me ask you, is no water really a problem for God? Right? I mean, what about the Exodus? What about the Red Sea? I mean, what about the manna? Bread, literally, bread falling from heaven. Hello? Anybody ever seen that? See, the record of God's dealing with Israel to this point was nothing but miraculous provision and blessing time and time and time again. And yet, when the next set of hard circumstances came around, they didn't trust him. They grumbled, they complained, they doubted. Let me say it this way. They lived... As if none of that other stuff that God had been doing in the past was relevant to their present circumstances. And you see, that's what irked the Lord about how they responded. 
And in Psalm 95, the wording's better there, I think, than kind of the transliteration of it here in Hebrews chapter 3. But in Psalm 95, the Lord said that instead of trusting me to meet their needs, they put me to the test. Here's the way it says it in the ESV. He says, that he says the Lord says, your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. I had done enough to prove myself to them, and yet they tried to, they tried to put me to the test again. They tried to say, God, prove yourself in this. And through their grumbling and their complaining. And so if you look at verse 9 here in Hebrews 3, Hebrews rephrases the psalmist's words when he says it this way. He says, they saw my work for 40 years. In other words, the Exodus, in the Exodus experience, they had been swept up into the mighty works of God. They had seen the plagues. They would watched God you know, wipe out Pharaoh's army and divide the Red Sea and to deliver them from their enemies. And yet despite all that they had seen and they had experienced, their hearts became hard and they stopped hoping in him. And unbelief, even just for that moment, got the upper hand. And they began to put their hope in other things rather than in God's power to save them. And here's what it means. Here's what this means, okay? Let me quote John Piper, a pastor in Minneapolis who, who preached a sermon on this passage. It's really great. And you can find it on his website. He says, it is possible. Here's what this means. He says, it is possible. What we learn from this is it's possible to come close to the work of God, the love of his people, the light of his word, the privilege of prayer, the moral force of his example, the gifts and miracles of his spirits, the blessings of his providence, and the daily revelation of sin, of sun and rain. It's possible to taste of these things and be deeply affected by them and ultimately to be lost in unbelief because Jesus Christ himself is not your heart's delight and hope and confidence and reward. Now, that's very flowery, so let me interpret a little bit. What he's saying and what I think Hebrews 3 is saying is it is possible to have a religious experience and to be a part of a church and to be faithfully serving God from all outward appearances to be a Christian, but in all that stuff to be, still have a heart full of unbelief. And eventually what's going to happen is if you don't dig down deep enough into that and root out the unbelief, if you only deal with the sin in your life, if you even choose to deal with the sin in your life, but if you only deal with it on, on a superficial level, eventually it will overtake you like it did Israel. And so what we've got to do then is we've got to learn to talk about sin on a different level, not just the what of sin, but the whys. The inner motivations and, de- and, desi- and drives and desires of the heart that are underneath all of these external sins. And here's what I mean. We've got to dig down together into the unbelief that so captivates our hearts. Let me get you, give you a couple of examples of, of where unbelief kind of makes itself known. Uh, when I complain in my circum- about my circumstances the way Israel did, right? That's unbelief. Complaining, grumbling, all the favorite pastimes of church people, right? That's, never mind, that was a joke. Obviously, you've never been a pastor. No. This, this sense of grumbling and complaining that happens in church circles or just in life in general, it's unbelief. Because when you grumble or complain, you're not believing that what God is doing in your life is good. I remember I had a conversation with a friend recently uh, who thought I was upset with them. And, I, and in the conversation, I said something like, I'm not, I'm not mad and frustrated with you. I'm just, I'm just upset that, that it is the way that it is. I'm just upset, I'm just angry that, that, there's, that we're having to fight through these things. And what I realized is, is I wasn't, when I thought at the time that I was mad at that person, but the, really I was just mad at God, who, who had ordained my circumstances the way that he had. Right? I mean, just grumbling and complaining. Or, or when I live in discontent and ingratitude, right? Thinking, I, you know, I deserve better. God's holding out on me. So I'm just, I'm just not grateful, discontent, wanting something more. 
or when I'm anxious over my circumstances. Because you see what anxiety over your circumstances is, is Matthew 6, Jesus says, it's doubting that God will come through for you. And where there's anxiety, it's a sign that something in my life has become too important, and the anxiety comes because whatever that thing is, it's being threatened. Right? Or unbelief when I, in my drivenness, in my, my desire to achieve, whether it be at work or with my kids or you know, wherever it might be, just the sense of wanting, I, if, there, if the work's going to get done, it's going to be me that does it. Right? And it's just an unbelief that God, God's not really there. He's not really going to provide and take care of me and do the work on my behalf. And so there are all these places. See, they're just, if you begin to drill down into your heart, you'll see just like these Israelites at this rock, you know, this, this place where there is no water, there are all kinds of ways where your heart's still living in unbelief. And what the writer of Hebrews, quoting Psalm 95, goes on to say, if you look there in verses 10 and 11, is that because of their rebellion and their hard hearts, God, wrath was kindled against the whole generation of people. Psalm 95 actually says it this way, for 40 years I loathed that generation. And the consequence was they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. God was taking them into the promised land until this, this kind of unbelief surfaced in, in this generation. And so then God came up with a, with a new strategy. And his new strategy was he, he forced them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire unbelieving generation died out. And then he brought them into the promised land. And that was an act of judgment. And so don't miss what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying if you and I do what they did, and if we harden our hearts and live in unbelief the way the Israelites did in Exodus 17.7, then God will be provoked to wrath against us too. I mean, there's real spiritual danger. It's not enough to look back at a point in your life where, when you had some type of religious experience or made a commitment to follow Jesus or whatever it might be. Continuance in the Christian life is the test of reality. And so in order to continue in the faith, you've got to go beyond the external manifestations of sin and dig down into your hearts, right? And find the places where you still possess an evil, unbelieving heart. And he says, take care. Verse 12, wake up, pay attention. Shake yourself awake. See, that's the need for endurance. Those two conditional statements in the historical reference. We partakers of Christ if we hold fast our confidence to the end. But secondly, and the next two are going to go faster than the first. Secondly, we see the method of endurance. Because you see, Hebrews 3 is not only a warning against unbelief, it's also a call to repentance and faith. And if you look back again at those two conditional statements, you'll see, uh, you'll see this. Look again, verse 6. We are his house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And then in verse 14, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So both those verses say that the cure or the preventative is to hold fast our confidence or our boast. You see that? And so we got to ask, what does that mean then? We, that's what we have, what, what, what does he mean by that? And well, it's, it's what we've already said. See, we're being constantly tempted to stop hoping in God and put our hope in some other thing, put our trust in some other thing, and to make that thing our confidence or our boast. And what this refers to, this word boast, is an interesting word, and I've, I've, I've done this before, but it's, it's helpful to repeat. Uh, in that day and time, and, and even, you know, kind of all the way until maybe the 7th or 8th, ninth century, when people talked about a boast, they were referring to a ritual boast. And what a ritual boast is, is it's this sense of, if you've ever seen a movie like Braveheart or any of the kind of really dramatic war movies, you know that there comes this time where there's this, this big battle that they are facing, and everyone is scared, and they're, they're you know, usually it's against an overwhelming foe. And, and everybody's kind of shaking in their boots, and they're thinking, in Braveheart, it's, we, who wants to die for these guys? Let's go home. 
Let's get out of here. And then all of a sudden, William Wallace shows up, right, riding on his horse with his face painted blue, uh, looking rather intimidating with all of his warriors. And he goes and he stands as a general before the army, and he begins to he begins to give them a rousing speech, telling them, you know, we can do it. We've got what it takes. We're going to mop the floor with these guys. Let's go and, and do this. And all of a sudden, fear, because of this man and his kind of the, all of the euphoria of the moment, fear has now been turned, turned to courage, and this army is no longer shaking in their boots. Now they're flashing the enemy army, right, and lifting up their kilts or whatever it might be. Right? Do you remember this? The men are all snickering and smiling. The women are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Right. So what's happened is, is they, they, their fear has been turned to confidence. Their, their quaking in their shoes has been turned to just a willingness to go and, you know, run, charge towards the enemy. And that, that's, what, that's a boast. That's a ritual boast. So a ritual boast says, we can do this. We can get it done. We're strong enough. And what the scripture's teaching us is that every one of us, every human heart, looks to something to give us confidence. Or security, so that we can go out into the world with confidence. A few examples. You can make a relationship your boast. Right? You can, you can say, as long as this person loves me, as long as they're there for me to take care of me, then everything's going to be okay. And that's the thing that gives you confidence. Or you can make money your boast. You know, as long as the bank account has this many zeros, or you could say as long as it isn't zero. Right? As long as the bank account is in the, is in the black and not the red, no matter how bad everything else might be, as long as that's true, then everything else is going to be okay. And that's the thing that gives you confidence that you need to go out. Or you could make your moral record your boast. You could get the confidence that you need from the fact that you're a good person or you're a hard worker and good things come to good people, right? We all know that. But Hebrews says... Um, the boasting and the confidence that should drive us is not a boasting or a confidence in any of these things, but that we must hold fast, Hebrews says, to the confidence and the boast that we had at the beginning. And that boast that he refers to there is confidence in God's provision in his son, Jesus, who being the one who created the heavens and the earth, remember all these things, came down and took upon flesh and blood that he might make propitiation for our sins and become a high priest so that he could help us in our need. And what Hebrews is saying is if the person and work of Christ are not your boast, and if you're looking to other things for confidence and security, then eventually you'll be overtaken. And so the work then that this this passage calls us to, the work is this constant rooting, working to the root and rooting out the places of where unbelief are still operative in our lives and turning away from those things that we're looking to for confidence and turning back to Jesus to be our supreme confidence and our boast. And this is this never-ending process of repentance and faith. And that is the method for endurance. See? And I want you to see, endurance is not a matter of ramping up your will. Endurance is not, whether you endure or not, has nothing to do with how hard you try. I'm saying, try hard. Go give it everything you got, but endurance is not a matter of ramping up your will and trying harder and harder. Endurance, the method of endurance is becoming more proficient at repentance and faith as a lifestyle. You see this? And so we've looked at the need and the method. 
So finally, we need to see how this passage teaches us about the means. And it's just this right in the middle. In verse 13, I want you to see this. Verse 13, exhort one another. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And the teaching of that, the verse is very clear, isn't it? You'll never be successful living the Christian life alone. You'll never be successful being marginally involved in the life of a church. The means that God intends to use in your life to help you endure through all of the trials and temptations is a confrontational community. You need to be living in close enough proximity to a group of people so that you can't hide. That's what it's teaching. See, being withdrawn relationally, being withdrawn emotionally, closing off your life to other people, all these strategies that we use, I I just gently want to say those things are a sign of spiritual immaturity and incredible naivete in regards to how sin works in your life. And that's exactly what verse 13 helps us to understand. And so look there as we kind of finish up in the next few minutes. Uh, Look at verse 13, and let's just dig into this just for a few minutes. You see, here's the problem. No person who is happily married wakes up one morning and says, you know, I think I'm going to commit adultery today. But it happens. And here's how it happens. There's a drift. See? Hebrews 2, verse 1. Sin works. There's a drift. There's, There's a moment of carelessness, or you get lazy, or you take down your guard, even for just a moment. This is how unbelief works in the heart. It's hidden. It's subversive. You don't even know it's there. And this is why Hebrews talks about and warns us about the deceitfulness of sin. And when Hebrews talks about, verse 13, the deceitfulness of sin, it means that blindness to sin is part of what sin is. That sin, by its very nature, hides itself from you. It's hidden. You're blind to it. The sins, in other words, the sins that are really killing you are the ones you don't even know about. The places where you are the most in the most danger of giving into unbelief are the places where you're completely blind to how sin's working in your heart. So what sin does, if you're not careful and if you don't deal with it, if you let it grow in your life, eventually what happens, what we're told here is it begins to make you hard. Not overnight, but over time. It hardens your heart. You see that there? So when the Bible talks about a hard heart, it means primarily an unresponsive heart. So in other words, what sin does and how unbelief kind of works into your life is it begins to to deaden you. Uh, The metaphor the Bible uses to describe this hardened heart is a calloused heart. And if you know what calluses are, I have these calluses on my fingers from playing the guitar for so many years. And I've showed my kids, they think it's hilarious. I can take a pen or I can take, you know, something really sharp and plunge it about four inches deep into the tips of my fingers. Not four inches, that would be like into my hand, but, you know, I can, I can go a long way. I can go really, really deep, really, really deep, uh, because, because what is it? What's a callus? A callus is this area of dead skin that's built up because of, you know, use, and what happens is, is you can, you, your heart, if you're not careful, your heart can get to where it doesn't feel anymore. That's what it means, that's what the scripture means by a hard heart. You don't feel. See, that's what sin does. If you persist in it, it desensitizes you. It deadens your conscience, and you begin to drift. Sin infiltrates your life and begins to take you over. And you don't even know it's there until you wake up one day and it's too late. I mean, is that that frightening? And so the solution then is just here in verse 13. Exhort one another. 
And it's interesting, the word there is the word parakaleo, which is the Greek word for the Holy Spirit, which is translated, you know, helper or advocate or counselor. Parakaleo, one another, the Hebrew says. Isn't that great? The word typically is translated encourage, encourage one another. But here the ESV chooses the word exhort. You see that? And I think it's interesting the ESV, the ESV does that. And I think it's because there's, there's some contextual considerations. Because what encouragement requires in times like this is something more than affirmation, which is what we typically mean when we use the word encourage, isn't it? It means here confrontation. Love is both compassion and truth, right? In other words, because of the deceitfulness of sin and our heart's propensity to replace God with other boasts, we need people who are going to be constantly, daily looking into our lives. People who are willing to speak words of truth uh, that cause us you know, to have hearts of faith in the superior value of Christ above all things. We need friends to help us with the constant movement of repentance and faith that causes us to persevere until the end. Because you see, unbelief means failing to rest in Jesus as our Savior and instead putting our hope and confidence in other things. And therefore, helping each other towards faith means exposing this in one another's lives where we're blind to it because of sin's deceitfulness and drawing one another back to, constantly drawing one another back to the beauty of the gospel. And here's what this means. Endurance, or, or I, the title of the sermon, Eternal Security or Enduring to the End is a Community Project. You need to be a part of a confrontational community if you're going to have any hope of making it to the end. You need to open your lives up to the probing of good friends and live honestly with them and stop and start, start talking about your struggles and sins and stop hiding and invite their critique. And this is why we have community groups in our church. Because it is, it is impossible to accomplish what Hebrews 3.13 commands of us in an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. We try. This is what I try to do. We try to exhort you. But look carefully there at the, the verse. It says, exhort one another. So it's the responsibility of the church as a body. So we divide up into small groups and we meet in homes to allow for more intimacy. This is what we do. But it's impossible even to accomplish Hebrews 3.13 in two community group meetings every, every month, which is why we say that community group meetings are just a mechanism for real, deep, gospel-centered friendships where you go in and out of one another's lives constantly and spontaneously. I mean, look again. Exhort one another. How often? Every day. I mean, if you want to know just how dangerous sin is, if you want to know just how important gospel friendships are, It's that every day. So let me ask you. Do you have an everyday friend? You need one. I mean, who's your everyday encourager? Is it your spouse? A co-worker? A friend? You need one. See, this is what Hebrews is saying. Be careful. Be careful of unbelief. It's an invitation to really warn us against the danger of sin as the way it works in our hearts. And also an invitation to a constant lifestyle of repentance and faith. But the way, the way we go about this lifestyle of repentance and faith is through a confrontational community of people who are willing to come in and say hard things to one another and lead one another into that process of repentance and faith. And this is obviously the vision that we have of the kind of church that we want to be. And yet, I think we would all say we have a lot of work to do. So let's pray. Can we do that? Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your Son. Who has suffered and died in our place upon the cross, has taken upon himself our sins, 
uh, that we might be righteous in him. And therefore, uh, we are told in Galatians chapter 6 that our boast is to be in the cross of Jesus Christ alone. That the confidence and the, uh, the sense of security and the boldness that we have in our lives comes from looking to the cross and knowing there that that is the proof of your love for us. And that if you would give your only son, will you not also with him freely give us all things? And therefore we have no reason to doubt your heart. Forgive us that so often we do. We try to turn to other things and make them our boast. Help us to befriend one another in such a way that we help each other endure to the end. That you might gain great glory through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, we're going we're gonna to say we're going to start about uh, 11.05 for the congregational meeting. It's about 10 minutes. So if you would just go, if you're going to stay, if you're a member, we, pl- we ask you to please stay. Go get your kids and bring them back. We're not going to be in here long. If you're a regular tender and you're just, you know, interested, you're welcome to come. Obviously, if, if where there are things that come to a vote, membership is kind of required for that, but you're welcome to stay if you'd like. But if everybody would go get their kids and come back, and then we'll, we'll call that... Uh, to order in just about 10 minutes, okay? Now, the declaration of this benediction over you is the the summation of all that God has done in Christ to save you by sending him in the likeness of human flesh to suffer and die on our behalf. And so uh, Christ has won for us the Father's commitment uh, to preserve us to the end. It's through the work of Christ that we come to know God and receive new hearts that are motivated towards obedience. But see, the benediction, this promise, as I say this over you, What's contained in this benediction is also the promise that the God who has sent Jesus to save you will bring you home. And so receive then this benediction and let your hearts rest in it uh, as, we, as we continue to journey through the wilderness of this life, uh, waiting for the day when we cross the Jordan uh, into the promised land. And so receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.